listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Every year, on the second Sunday of this 50-day Easter season, the lectionary has us read this story about Thomas and his doubts. Three-year cycle appoints different resurrection accounts for Easter Day, and for each Sunday throughout the season, there's a different gospel each year. But on this second Sunday in Easter, it's always the story of Doubting Thomas. I suspect it's offered as something of a consolation for those who struggle to believe For while Jesus does bless those who have not seen and yet have come to believe, he doesn't turn Thomas away. Instead, he meets him in his doubts. There's room for the hard questions and the gnawing doubts. In other words, there was right from the beginning. That's all I'm going to say, though, on this gospel reading for tonight. As I want to work a bit with the text from the Acts of the Apostles. It was a brief reading, just four verses, but it's packed in terms of what it potentially holds for us. It's set early in the life of the Christian movement, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, but before the early Christian movement has begun to understand itself as being for all people. It's still very much a Jewish movement at this point, based largely in Jerusalem. Now the whole group of those who who believed were of one heart and soul, Luke tells us. No one claimed private ownership of any possessions, But everything they owned was held in common. You heard that, right? No one claimed private ownership. Everything held in common. There was not a needy person among them, Luke continues, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. As N.T. Wright notes, this was a particularly radical practice For Jews, for whom land, and particularly ancestral and familial land, was a defining part of religious identity. Yet here in light of the resurrection, and empowered by the presence of the Spirit, these early Christians loosed their individual and familial hold on land and houses and property, and provided to each as any had need. It's a picture that over the centuries has inspired various movements and communities to try to live without individual property ownership. From its beginnings, it's been a cornerstone of the Benedictine monastic movement, that the community holds property in common, but individuals very little themselves. Though particularly in the medieval world, That practice often became rather distorted, resulting in monasteries that were incredibly wealthy landholders. 
And that, in turn, gave rise to different reform movements. So the Trappists, the Cistercians, were founded as a corrective, while the Franciscans were even more radical in their vision of life without private possessions. Yet it's interesting, in time, even the reforming movements often found that the ideal had slipped, and they, in turn, had to reform again. In the Anabaptist tradition, there is the obvious example of the Hutterites. But again, in that movement, there is some real history of distortion moving in as well. More recently, the new monastic movement has wrestled with these questions of private property and a common community purse or account. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove was here with us back in 2009. He spoke of how living in community with a common bank account really helped him keep his priorities in order and perspective. He spoke of how easy it was to convince himself that he really, really, really needed the latest iPhone. That the last one somehow wasn't good enough. And the new one, well, the newest iPhone had all of these capacities and all of these features that would be so beneficial to his ministry. And then he'd be sitting in a meeting with other members of his intentional community talking about their common life and their common decisions around their expenditures. And suddenly the ideal of that expensive new iPhone would come tumbling back down to earth and he wouldn't even bring up the idea. But there's another set of oh-so-human realities that can surface amongst the most well-meaning and committed people and communities. I know of one intentional community that had decided that, well, a, a full common purse, like a common bank account, was not going to be a part of their full model. They'd still covenant together around simplicity, and they would make some decisions together about simplifying each of the family's lives by sharing. And given that most of the members of this community lived in the same urban neighborhood, they could easily arrange to share cars, power tools, lawnmowers, even washers and dryers. I mean, after all, why do 10 households need a circular saw each? Or why do 10 households each need an extension ladder? Things that the average household only uses a few times a year. And if, say, three households could share the cost of one car, all they'd need to do is figure out a scheduling system and it could work out. Maybe everyone will walk or ride their bikes more. That can't be a bad thing. It all made perfect sense. But then those oh-so-human realities began to set in. You know, one person's idea of a clean and well-maintained car isn't necessarily the same as another person's idea of a clean, well-maintained car. No one is quite sure where that extension ladder got to. I thought it was my day to do the laundry, not yours. And how difficult is it 
to put the drill bits back into their case in order. By the way, who filled the chainsaw with regular gasoline? Anybody knows it's the gas and oil mix. Well, you get the point. We have no idea how long the early church managed to sustain its practice of a common purse. Maybe in time, the ancient world's version of seized chainsaws and missing extension ladders began to surface, and the ideal shifted. We do know that from Paul's epistles, Jerusalem's economy had gotten so bad that part of his work on his mission journeys throughout the Mediterranean involved taking up a collection to support the lives of what he called the saints in Jerusalem. We also know that Paul was rather committed to earning his own keep. Acts 18 describes him as a tent maker by trade. And we know that he was more than a little impatient with people he characterized in 1 Thessalonians as idlers. It would seem that the early church was as filled with characters no less human than that intentional Christian community with its squabbles over laundry days and clean cars and chainsaw oil. In other words, the ancient church had as many human people with as many human foibles as it does any other church community. So we don't know how long they managed in Jerusalem to live in that way of radically shared property. But the picture from Acts 4 should haunt us a bit. For it shows a community that at least for a time managed to live out something quite remarkable. It's not even so much the specifics of what they did, but rather the why they did it. The whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, Luke writes. They had a common heart, a common soul, and their radical practice of ensuring that all would have enough was born from that. As William Willimon states in his commentary on Acts, Luke was enough of a realist to know that there was a good chance that where our possessions are, our hearts will be also. And so this early church community, as described in Acts, recognized where its one heart and one soul was and lived accordingly. All the way through his gospel and all the way through Acts, it's a theme that Luke keeps highlighting. That which is held too tightly, too individualistically, and in a self-justifying way can be our undoing. To again cite Williman, wealth is not, for Luke, a sign of divine approval. It's a danger. The rich young man could not part with his money, and another rich man was declared thou fool because of his silly reliance on well-filled barns. Do you know, sometimes even the apparently right things can be done for the wrong reasons. Sometimes simplicity itself 
or even the renunciation of accumulation, consumerism, and stuff can become a kind of an upside-down act of self-absorbed pride. What we need is to be of one heart and one soul. And that's the heart and soul of the resurrected Christ, who challenges us to see beyond our limitations and calls us to be the fully human, made-in-the-image-of-God creatures we were intended to be from the very beginning. So we need to let this little account, just a few verses from the end of Acts 4, shake us. We need to hear it and to have some of our usual assumptions challenged regarding what is necessary, what's workable or practical, and especially what's mine. You know, we, we convince ourselves of all kinds of things that are, I, I need that, I, I need that. Hmm, Acts 4 would say, do you? If living in the Spirit as a resurrection people could lead that ancient community into their dramatically radical practices, again, maybe just for a time, but they lived them, if that's the case for them, what might the Spirit be challenging this resurrection people to do and to be? The Easter season is a season of endless possibility. It's the season that invites us to look hard at who and what we are as a people together, an inspirited resurrection people, and say, what's possible and what is this risen Christ prepared to accompany us with and call us into? Anything becomes part of the conversation. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.